Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other Friday to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Okay, the mocking cast. Here we are again on the verge of another Super Bowl weekend. Speaking as someone who doesn't really care about uh, the uh, Super Bowl, I would love to uh, hear your prediction, uh, Sarah. What do you think is going to happen this weekend? (laughs) I'm not exactly sure who's playing, to be honest with you. Unbelievable. That is the right answer. Thank God I'm the voice for that the everyman the this week. Every year at the Super Bowl, Dave sends me a text. It just says, yay, sports. So I'm looking forward, I'm looking forward to receiving that this year. Should I give a preview? Please. I know what's happening. It's the league's most insufferable team, the Patriots, against its most challenging fan base for the Eagles. And I think the Eagles fans really, they claim that for themselves, okay? When Cowboys wide receiver Michael Irvin was injured on the field, they cheered the injury an opposing player. They've really had a well-deserved reputation. But that being said, it's Nick Foles, who is not their starting quarterback. He's kind of a journeyman who had a good half season a little while ago. He's their quarterback because Carson Wentz, their kind of all uh, all pro candidate, a rookie, went down with an injury. So basically every thinking person who doesn't live in Massachusetts or northern Connecticut will be rooting for the Philadelphia Eagles this weekend. I just look at Sarah and I's faces during the, your explanation there. How, how long did you last like, there, Sarah? <laughs> how long did you track? He was three words into the second sentence and my brain was like, I'm so bored right now. <laughs> <laughs> my poor husband he always has to watch football by himself i'm just like i can't oh and poor Josh, man. i'll just sit there and be like this just isn't ethical and he's like please leave the room do our listeners know where your husband went to college do they know he went to georgia so yeah which if you're a football fan was just brutal brutal yeah. this year yes felt so bad for him i was pulling so hard for his dogs i know he had a fun time watching it though well listen that's all well and good guys um <laughs> Shut it down. Well, actually, I'm not going to shut it down. I'm going to play to my weaknesses here and go with the first piece of the week is about Tom Brady. It's actually something that I feel like Nick Lannon has written maybe three times before, but I love it every time. Mm. It's in The Atlantic, The Case Against Tom Brady, written by Adrienne LaFrance. DC opens by saying, perhaps the sight of Tom Brady's chin dimple doesn't blind you with seething rage. I guess you don't have eyeballs. It isn't (laughs) what she's trying to figure out why she does not like Tom Brady. She says it isn't his thing with the avocado quote unquote ice cream or that he's from California or that he wrote a book called the TB12 method, how to achieve a lifetime of sustained peak performance or that he tried to sell people $99 science pajamas or that he married a mega successful supermodel or that he has a $44 million salary or his 66,159 passing yards or his five Super Bowl rings or the fact that he is some kind of football savant Benjamin Button who ages in reverse and physically cannot stop winning. Actually, wait. It is the winning thing. It's totally all the winning. The bottom line is that the Patriots just win too much and people don't like it. Tom Brady has the perfect wife, the perfect face, the perfect life. And people's hatred for Brady, Adrian writes, is just a function of winning so much. 
Can you relate, RJ? Yes, I can relate. But I will say there was an interesting article beginning of this month on ESPN.com. The title was something like, is this the end for Brady, Belichick, and Kraft? And what it revealed in there actually is that there is actually a legitimate theological reason to hate Tom Brady now, which seems to be that basically bought into his own myth and that part of this whole TB12 method, you know, which he's been working on with his private trainer for the last decade and coming out with a book. One thing he basically says is that if you eat right, if you exercise right, if you stretch right, if you think right, that you can play football basically indefinitely and never get injured. So it's almost like the Tom Brady version of the secret, you know, or the Norman Benz appeal power of positive thinking, that level of, of sort of self-righteousness or demigoddery, whatever you want to call it, has caused a real rift in his relationship with his coach and fellow players. And, and so there may be actually something there. And so that's another reason I want him to lose for his own good, you know, for his own, for his, for his own immortal soul. I want him to lose and experience a little bit of, um, you know, humanity, I guess. Oh, you're, you're such a good mm. pastor. I think that's right. Really- uh, aren't I? I? I appreciate that. Yeah. Sarah, what's your sense of Tom Brady? Do you have one? Well, I looked at his recipe for avocado ice cream and <laughs> it was <laughs> terrible. <laughs> this ain't Brooklyn, Tom Brady. I don't want avocado in my ice cream. <laughs> That's what I think. The man clearly does represent the law. He is the incarnation of the law for many, many men in this country, yeah. I would say. And that is why we want to see him brought low and, you know, the Eagles to win, even though, as you say, their fan bases prides themselves on being obnoxious. Is that fair to say? I mean, did you see the video that went viral of the guy in the subway station in Philadelphia who ran into the pole and knocked himself out because he was he was and and then it was like everyone's like, oh my gosh, this is after the game. He's clearly been overserved. It turned out it was before the game even started. Have you guys not seen what alternate universe do you live in that you did not see that video? I would like to see it. I mean, I think this is going through our our heads. I mean, by the time most people listen to this, that we will know whether or not Tom Brady is a living condemnation of us mm-hmm. all. Well, the Patriots are going to win. I'm sorry. The Patriots are going to win. It, it, that's what's going to happen. But I'm really, really hoping that they lose. Well, the, in that article, they talk about – I think it's – well, actually, it's in the next article. They talk about how underdog – there's something inherently human about the underdog and that we will switch to the underdog even mid-game if it looks like the previously team that thought to win is actually become the underdog in the middle of the game. But before we get there, Sarah – Mm-hmm. The word on the street, or at least on the virtual street, the interwebs, mm-hmm. is that you call yourself not a cradle Episcopalian, but a trailer Episcopalian. Would you care to comment on this gossip? I have a piece coming out, a piece I have wanted to write. I mean, you know, sometimes you write something, you're like, I was born to write this. This is that piece. I think it's going to be in Covenant's blog this week about the term cradle Episcopalian and my great disdain for that description, which I hear all the time. I mean, I heard it at an annual meeting this past weekend. I hear it pretty regularly, but just, you know, on a more serious note, how it can be very alienating for people who are visiting a church. And I just don't get it. I mean, what does that mean that you've like, you know, depending on where you live, heard really bad preaching and seen a decline in numbers? I mean, I don't know what I mean. Sing, sing, she did it. What does that mean? I just don't, I don't, where's the pride in this, you know? So, um, yeah, I just, I want people to stop using it. I actually want to go to general convention 
which is in Austin. You know, it's this big meeting of the Episcopal Church. It's in Austin this summer. And just walk around with a camera and a microphone and ask people if they're cradle Episcopalian. And then as they try to answer me, just yell over them like, no one cares, you know. Mm-hmm. My husband has told me I'm not allowed to do this because he would like to continue to um, be employed in the Episcopal Church. <sighs> and I would too, but, you know, I'm a little riskier. Mm. So. It's a way of saying like, yes, I go to church, but I'm not crazy. You know, I go right. to church, but I, it's something I do on Sundays, but, but right. don't worry, I'm not going to Bible thump you. Yeah, I get it. I think sometimes people use it facetiously. And what they mean is I come from a long line of workaholic, alcoholic, absent fathers and, you know, people who wear corduroys. And I love that. I mean, use that description all day, you know, because that's at least honest, right? I mean, but... But you're right. It is obnoxious. I hear people say it all the time, actually. And sometimes I want to say, well, I too am in a cradle Episcopalian, like fist bump. What do you do when, when you're, you know, like, uh, let's touch prayer books together. Even though yeah. we, if we're actually cradle Episcopalians, we probably don't own a prayer book. No, you definitely don't own one. Yeah. Well, there is a secret handshake, obviously, um, which uh, I, I probably shouldn't talk anymore about, but... <laughs> It's just a thumbs down. That's the handshake. That's, that's what it is. Oh, sorry. It's pretty say, specific. I know, well, I know a lot of our listenership, readership, is, is, think maybe never even heard this term before, but welcome to our world, 9 to 5, Sunday morning. And it sort of leads into, I think, the next piece, which is from the LA Times, Johan Hari asking, are junk values making us sick? This is an interesting article. He says there are two kinds of motives that drive human beings. Imagine you play the piano. If you play it in the morning because it gives you joy, that is an intrinsic motive. You are doing it simply because that experience is worth doing in and of itself. Now imagine you play the piano to impress your parents or in a dive bar you hate to pay the rent. That would be an extrinsic motive. You are doing it to get something out of it. The University of Illinois social scientist Tim Kasser wanted to find out how does acting on these different motives affect us. He investigated the question using a range of techniques, and his results were startling. People who achieved their extrinsic goals didn't experience any increase in day-to-day happiness. None. So your promotion, your fancy car, your new iPhone, that expensive necklace you're wearing, they won't improve your happiness at all. But people who achieved their intrinsic goals did become significantly happier and less depressed and less anxious. So people whose lives were dominated by extrinsic values had a worse time in almost every respect. They felt sicker. They were angrier. They experienced less joy and more despair and depression. They had worse relationships and they were more insecure. Extrinsic values are KFC for the soul. Yet our culture constantly pushes us to live extrinsically. How do you guys live? Extrinsically, intrinsically, both and all the time? Probably more extrinsically, if I'm honest with myself. I find it difficult to take time to do things that I just enjoy for their own sake and don't have some sort of utilitarian value. And part of that is you guys have kids, you have jobs, you have demands, and it sometimes does feel like life is a never-ending to-do list. And this is maybe my own thing. There's almost even sometimes uh, some guilt, honestly, in taking time to do something that doesn't produce a measurable result, but is just something that I enjoy doing. And yet I suffer from that as well, you know, feeling like everything is extrinsic and nothing is intrinsic. Yeah, it's this reminded me of, you know, my husband and I have Mondays off together, which is like a huge gift. I know we're super lucky to be able to do that. 
I think I was pretty miserable to be married to for like the first seven to eight years of like us having that because I just always felt like we had to do stuff and I still really battle that. And I have to look up sometimes and remind myself again, right, that we have a limited amount of time together. This is the one moment we have. Like Monday afternoon is always such a weird feeling. It's like, okay, well, you know, if we piddled around and then like went out to lunch, or saw a movie, God forbid, you know, I'm like, Oh, gosh, like, there's so much laundry to do. But if I do laundry, you know, for two hours, or whatever length of time it takes us to get it done, it's like, well, we didn't really relax together. It's, yeah, I mean, I think that whole usefulness thing is interesting. And also just, I mean, obviously, social media calls us all to live more and more extrinsically, because there's this need to, you know, prove your value and hustle for your worth. And I'm, I feel more guilty of that than anybody else I know. And it doesn't lead to happiness. I mean, it doesn't, I always wanted to be a writer. And then, you know, I got to write this book with Mockingbird, which was so exciting. And it was really wonderful to write the book. But I remember thinking, it was really fun to write the book, like, and now it's going to go out into the world. And I suddenly realized that that wasn't the joyful part. The joyful part was actually getting to write the book, if that makes sense. Um, and I had expected it to be the going out into the world part. So, yeah, it's a it's like when you read these things, people lose a ton of weight, right? And they think they're going to be so happy after they lose a ton of weight, but really, they're just it's this it's the same life. Yeah. It made me think also about college admissions, honestly, because you know we have a sophomore, mm -hmm. we're second semester sophomore, next year is junior year, and there is this constant struggle when we think about how our son does or should spend his time, uh, about whether it's more important for him to just do the things that he enjoys and to develop as a human being versus like checking those boxes that are going to look good on a college resume. You know, should he take the time to do an SAT prep class? You know, should he uh, do more community service or, you know, which community service is a good thing, but if you're just doing it to put it on the college resume, then what's the point as opposed to him, again, doing those things that are going to develop him as a human being wherever he ends up going to college. And luckily, actually, when we talk to people at his school, they are much more on the intrinsic side of things. Oh, They're like, look, just concentrate on, on raising the best person you can. And where he goes to college is where he's going to go to college, where most of the pressure, real or perceived, comes from actually his other parents, mm. you know, who you see doing extrinsic things to try to get their children lined up for the best possible, you know, admissions outcome. And then it fills you with anxiety. Should I be doing the same thing? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I'm starting to feel that pretty acutely. That's super interesting. I mean, the clearly my mind goes also to how people think of their faith because I think a lot of times you become a Christian maybe at first because you resonate with the message of the gospel, the Holy Spirit is involved in some way. There's something deeply intrinsic about it, but oftentimes isn't it pitched as an extrinsic thing? Like this will make your life better. This will fix your problems. Mm -hmm. the, I mean, I, I see a lot of people at our church, they'll stick around for two to three years hoping that all of their pain will go away. And when it doesn't, they blame you or they blame God. They, that, that's God can handle it, I think. But they were using their faith. And I don't think there's ever like a purity of any of our motives involving any of this stuff. Right. I think we're always mixed, even at our best. But it did remind me of something that Father Stephen Freeman wrote for his blog that we quote all the time now. He's an Orthodox priest, but he wrote something called Why the Spiritual Life Doesn't Work, Doesn't Quote Unquote Work. He says, we look to our faith to solve problems, whether we suffer from psychological wounds or simple poverty and failure. We look to God for help. By the way, I think that's perfectly fine and wonderful. 
He goes on, the spiritual life and the techniques we imagine to be associated with it are the means by which we quote-unquote help ourselves and God will do the rest. This narrative, however, is simply not part of the Christian faith. The progress, improvement, better life scenario does not jibe with the account of the Christian life as given in the New Testament and the tradition. The prayer and fasting, almsgiving and confession that are at the very heart of the orthodox way of life, and you might just say Christian way of life, are not techniques or ways of self-improvement and betterment. They are the embracing of a way of life in which self-improvement and betterment are beside the point. To observe improvement in ourselves is to abandon the way of humility and repentance. It is the nature of the orthodox, and again, I would just say Christian way, that we become increasingly aware of our failures rather than our progress. The kingdom of God, he writes, will not be populated by the successful, the well-adjusted, and the wise. It is the failures, the foolish, and the fragile who will enter ahead of us, or at least those who are willing to risk their lives in such a manner. The modern narrative is not only false, it creates expectations that are never truly met. I find that to be deeply true, what he's saying. I think we can even game it the other way. We can sort of say, well, I'm going to embrace this way in order to secretly get better by not getting better. You know, I think that it is impossible to short circuit your self-improvement brain or the glory-seeking side of a person. But it is, as John Zoll writes in Grace and Addiction, I mean, getting worse is getting better. I really think that that is true because it, it involves also a sort of a sense of humor about yourself and taking a little less of yourself rather than more of yourself. But maybe I'm extrapolating too much from this. What do you guys think? I think it's a tough message to preach and to live because I, well, I think it's true. I think it doesn't sell. You know, the people are still looking for a way out. You know, they're still looking for something that works. Mm. And there's a great temptation to want to give them something that works and not just to give that to them with what you're saying, but with who you are. You know, I feel that pressure all the time. Like, am I, am I being an example of improvement or peace or joy or all these sorts of fruits of the spirit that I pray will be made manifest in my life? And what will people think of me if they see who I actually am? Mm -hmm. You know, if I'm honest with what's going on in my life. So it's, I think it's absolutely true. I just think it's not a, necessarily a popular message and it never has been, right? People want a hero kind of. So there's no forthcoming RJ12 method book. Is that, is that what you're saying? Uh, no. no. Okay. No, probably Thank not. God. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. I thought this was an interesting piece also from the balcony perspective in terms of how so often the narrative of the church and certainly some of my own streams of the church want us to somehow believe that like the kingdom is coming. I mean, it, it's also that kind of thing of like, well, if we just do the work, right. Um, the work is defined in our human terms, but we keep saying it's mandated by the gospel and then we can't find it there. But if we keep doing the work, then the kingdom will be here. And we just sort of leave Jesus out of that equation. And I think this is so similar. I mean, it's just this idea that, you know, if we do the work, then it's like, God's going to meet us halfway or whatever all those terrible phrases are. It never finds functions that way. I mean, it's, it is a hard message to preach our day, but you always preach it. I mean, honestly, like, I mean, I usually hear this from you, you know, so. it's, and it's true. It's like, you know, I love that he raises up these like desert mothers and desert fathers, because I read a lot of them in seminary, but never really had someone point out how much they suffered and how they were called to suffering. I mean, I think that is actually the best takeaway we can get from them, right? Because their Christian life is our Christian life and we're called to the same suffering in a lot of ways. So 
it's a hard message to hear. It's a hard message to preach, but it's so relevant. Well, it's it's certainly interesting because you really do deal with folks that, you know, life doesn't get better. In some ways it gets worse. Mm -hmm. And is that the test by which your faith stands or falls? And I know that none of these things are that conscious. You know, I I like Stephen Freeman. He always invokes the desert mothers and fathers. It's like almost maybe that's what it means to be orthodox. I think there's a slight underestimation of the psychological aspect that we will turn even if we phrase these disciplines as a way of undisciplining yourself mm-hmm. or these disciplines as a way of killing yourself rather than improving yourself or making yourself less rather than more, we still, the human psyche, the sinner's DNA, will take that and turn it into a ladder. So I don't know how helpful it is to even surface those things, yet at the same time, I also deeply attracted the way he talks about it. And the way he references AA, I think, is not a coincidence. I mean, what he says reminds me a lot of what Gerhard Forda says in his incredible essay on sanctification in this little book, which has the just hot title of Five Views on Sanctification. <laughs> you know, just really- It's, it's a B3. It's, it's a, it's a burner. Itself. <laughs> it, it does. But what he says is so amazing. You know, he says that sanctification is just the art of getting used to your justification. Mm. In other words, getting better is just getting used to the idea that you don't ever have to get better and that God in his mercy actually hides from us any progress we might make because we'd be so tempted to take credit for it and, and start to pin our hopes on it rather than on him. We'd start to look at ourselves and not at what Jesus has done for us. But then, you know, Sarah was talking about preaching this message. It is a message that preaches and it brings comfort and hope to afflicted, worn out people. I think where it gets complicated is it's not necessarily a message that gets things done and people want to get things done. You know, it's not sort of an inspirational can do, you know, let's put our shoulders to the plow and really, you know, accomplish something Mm -hmm. here. Uh, It it doesn't do that. And so maybe that's where the... You're not speaking from experience here, are you? <laughs> no, purely hypothetical. It's purely For listeners hypothetical. that don't know, RJ and I were involved in starting a church that um, preached this message. <laughs> and let's say it's a little self-defeating when you're trying to get the bills paid. <laughs> well, and, and it does make me, it makes me wonder like what the boundary, you know, here I am, I'm a, I'm a priest and I, I think I'm a preacher and I'm a pastor but I don't know if I know what it means to be a leader, quote unquote. You know, what, what does it mean to be a leader who preaches this message who, you know, will have bills to pay and buildings to build and ministries to build and people to lead, quote unquote. I'm not sure how this message feeds into sort of uh, leadership or what that even means. You in know, a uh, Josh and I are addicted to the show, The Path. Have you guys watched The Path? Yeah, with Aaron, uh, the guy from Breaking Bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's about this cult. And he is at this point has become the cult leader. And so he's asking himself these questions about like what does leadership look like and his version sort of of this cult his version of this religion is much more passive and now that he's at the head of it like he actually is having to you know air quotes sort of preach in a very different way and it's effective and then you see him in his personal life and it's kind of killing him on the inside. Like, it seems like the more that he preaches, like, you know, we're going to heal this planet and everybody needs to join this movement and we're all about love and light and blah, blah, blah. 
the more like he gets a divorce and like his like he misses his kids play and like last episode somebody tried to bury him alive you know like it's just fascinating to me like oh i mean well the, the whole point i mean one of the points when you preach the gospel you don't want to discourage people's intrinsic love of god and i think that's the danger you run when you preach against the extrinsic thing or at least you label it as killing in this yes. way that it really is but then my fear my trepidation is always you don't want to rob people of their christian joy in other words I hear, and I'm just kidding, but you know, there is a sense in which some people <laughs> I knew a intrinsically once. want to do do these disciplines, want to you know go to church more often, want to do these social justice things. Like you don't want to discourage that. It's you, you don't want to stri- yeah. you discourage the extrinsic thing while encouraging the intrinsic thing. And I think sometimes when I've failed here, I've ended up what people of hearing is like to even squash whatever intrinsic and maybe that's the holy spirit's job is to sort of create works of love but they're works of love which is an intrinsic motivation not an extrinsic motivation right i have a real personal experience with that because i remember the summer after i sort of you know had a conversion experience when i was a freshman in high school and i was so passionate about this this love this grace this forgiveness i read my bible in the morning i journaled like i had like consistent quiet times you know for a while there and then the next summer when i went to a quote unquote discipleship camp and all these things i'd sort of been doing somewhat spontaneously where people said well these are things that you really have to do to sort of keep mm-hmm. up your end of the bargain honestly I, i've struggled with it ever since you know, as soon as it became something I was supposed to do, rather than something that I just wanted to do, it took all of the joy out of it and made it into something that I was doing out of guilt rather mm-hmm. than love. Well, I don't know how else to segue into our final piece, because it is about sort of different approaches people take to a very touchy subject. But it is this wonderful article in the New York Times Magazine by Kate Bowler, professor at Duke Divinity School, and she's written a book about the prosperity gospel. And she was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer about three years ago. She wrote an amazing thing in the New York Times about it. And just a remarkable woman. And she calls it, What to Say When You Meet the Angel of Death at a Party. The angel of death being her, who's basically had three months to live for the last three years and what that's like. And she says, when it comes to small talk, I am the angel of death. A friend, (laughs) what a great line. A friend came back from Australia with a year's worth of adventures to tell and ended with a breathless, you have to go there sometime. He lapsed into silence, seeming to remember at that very moment that I was in the hospital. And I didn't know how to say that the future was like a language I didn't speak anymore. But what does a suffering person really want? How can you navigate the waters left churning in the wake of tragedy? I find that the people least likely to know the answer to these questions can be lumped into three categories, minimizers, teachers, and solvers. The minimizers are those who think I shouldn't be so upset because the significance of my illness is relative. These people are very easy to spot because most of their sentences begin with, well, at least, and she tells the story of her sister being on an airplane telling someone about Kate's diagnosis and the person saying, well, you know, at least she didn't have to live through the Iranian revolution. (laughs) And, uh, you know, she she jokes, she's like, my sister didn't realize she'd been entered into the suffering Olympics. But she also pinpoints how Christians do this by talking too much or too quickly about eternity, about heaven, and that that's a way of minimizing, you know, just get it in perspective, you know, just, 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 it's not as big a deal as you think. In other words, stop feeling the way you're feeling. But then she says, the second exhausting type of response comes from the teachers who focus on how this experience is supposed to be an education in mind, body, and spirit. 
I hope you have a Job experience, one man said bluntly. Bowler says, I can't think of anything worse to wish on someone. Job, who lost all his children and just suffered beyond uh, boils, you know. But then she says, the hardest lessons come from the solutions people who are already a little disappointed that I'm not saving myself. There's always a nutritional supplement, Bible verse, or mental process I have not adequately tried. They are tallying up the sum of my life, looking for clues, sometimes for answers, for the purpose of pronouncing a verdict. But I am not on trial. Now, I'll get to her final sentiment, but before I do, you guys are both in hospitals all the time and dealing with these actually on the ground. Did you find her discussion here or her categories, do you find them accurate? I thought they were great. I really had a moment where I was like, okay, which one of these am I? You know what I mean? Because I, I don't get this right a lot of the time and I'm probably a minimizer. At least in my head, I know like when I'm with someone who is eminently dying in my head, I'm always like, oh, well, they get to go home to Jesus. So I loved that she actually says in the piece, like I'm a professor at a Christian seminary. So a lot of Christians like to remind me that heaven is my true home, which makes me want to ask them if they would like to go home before me, maybe now, <laughs> you know, so um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I need to think more about that when I'm with people, because even if I'm really thinking it, not saying it, it still means I'm not present to them. It's still me, right, which is what this all is. We are uncomfortable with death. We are uncomfortable with the idea that this woman is, and she said it in the piece, in this liminal space that people aren't really in for very long, but she's now in for three years, right? You know, you're not dead yet, but you're close. Um, yeah. Anyway, what do you think, RJ? Maybe think of a couple things. There was a really wonderful little book I came across maybe like five or 10 years ago called Western Attitudes Towards Death by I think Philip Arias was his name. Did you pick your books for the titles, RJ? I did. I was really, I was really, I read, I read, read this great piece of The New Yorker by Atul Gawande about dying. And he wrote something for us about that. I love that piece. I did. I, I did. But he just talked about what a taboo death is in our society, that it's like the last great taboo, mm -hmm. that it used to be people died at home, surrounded by their friends and family. And now they, you know, die in a, in a you know, hermetically sealed building where they've never been before, surrounded by people they don't know. We've taken death and we've completely outsourced it and shoved it to the side because we cannot deal with the reality that we're all going to die. So that's one thought I had. And then, yeah, Sarah, like you, I, I did think about my inclinations to fix, to, to do something, to, to bring some kind of hope or healing into difficult situations. And it made me think of that amazing Ryan Gosling movie, uh, Lars and the Real Girl, mm. which I, you know, I don't want to give anything away. But when he, Lars, uh, Ryan Gosling, you know, experiences a significant trauma, he goes downstairs and there's these old women sitting there and he's like, what are you doing here? And she's like, well, we brought casseroles and, and we're sitting because this is what you do. You know, that when someone's hurting, you bring casseroles and you sit and you don't need to say and, and you know, by looking, you don't need to say anything. You don't need to do anything. You just need to be mm. there and how just simple, silent presence and love uh, is maybe the, the greatest remedy for someone mm. who's suffering. I mean, that is actually kind of. What she says, she doesn't want people to ignore what is going on. She wants it, she thinks acknowledgement is helpful, but acknowledgement alone isn't helpful. What she says, acknowledgement is the impulse to offer encouragement beyond acknowledgement is a perfect one. There is tremendous power in touch, in gifts, in affirmations when everything you knew about yourself might not be true anymore. I am a professor, but will I ever teach again? I'm a mom, but for how long? 
A friend knits me socks and another drops off cookies and still another writes a funny email or takes me to a concert. These seemingly small efforts are anchors that hold me to the present, that keep me from floating away on thoughts of an unknown future. They say to me, like my sister Maria did on one very bad day, Yes, the world has changed, dear heart, but do not be afraid. You are loved. You are loved. You will not disappear. Mm. I am here. You almost don't want to sully that with any kind of commentary. I was at this conference this past weekend out in St. Louis with a wonderful group of folks, and I was talking to a chaplain who was saying that, you know, you want to preach to people on their deathbed, and a lot of times they want to know, is there a gracious God? That's when they finally are asking that question. But, you know, what you're trying to convey is that God is present, especially when it looks like he's not in that sort of subcontrario cruciform way. And instead of saying God is present in that moment, you simply are present in that moment. Like you are mm. the presence of God. I mean, and maybe if you're wearing a collar, that's sort of doubly so. But to wrap words around it maybe cheapens it. You sort of are bringing all of your own extrinsic and intrinsic motivations to play. I don't know. I thought of, Sarah, I thought of you immediately when I read this, actually. I mean, I really appreciate that this woman is brave enough to be writing this stuff because I cannot imagine, you know, I don't, I know it's because I am one, but for me, there's like literally nothing sadder. No offense, dads on the podcast, but there's literally nothing sadder than a mom who's dying with small children. Like it just makes me so deeply sad because there's so much you miss out on. And for her to be able to have the capacity to talk about this and to teach us before she leaves is just incredibly brave to me. And I love Dave. I hope you don't mind me sharing this, but you told me that we asked her to come and speak at a conference, right? Yeah. And what did she email back? Uh, we wanted to interview her for something or ask okay. her to write for something. Uh -huh. And she's like, um, yeah, thanks for the invitation. I can't do it. I'm dying. <laughs> I, I love that. Yeah, I mean, I'm with RJ, though. It's such a weird thing now when people die and we're like, oh, so-and-so died and so-and-so could be three or 93. And everyone's like horrified. And it is horrifying, especially when people are young. But it's we just completely lost track of the fact that it's inevitable. That's just gone. So, you know, Thursday is my hospital day. And in a lot of ways, it's my favorite day of the week, you know, because it's it's not just that I get to sort of get out of the office and be down at the med center, but spending time with people who are suffering is such a powerful antidote to performancism. You know, that when I get caught up in thinking that it's all about what I can build or what I can accomplish or what I can bring to the table and that that's sort of what life is about. To spend time with people who are just there, who are patients, who are having to be patient, it's incredibly grounding and it reminds me of what's true about our faith and that again, we're human beings, we're not human doings. And that when someone's lying in a bed, suffering, dying, whatever it is, they're not thinking at all about what they did or didn't accomplish. They're only thinking about the relationships they have with the ones they love and with God. And it just, it, it brings everything into very stark relief. Like I sort of can't imagine preaching or leading a church in any kind of consistent way if I'm not spending, you know, time every week or every couple of weeks in a hospital being reminded of what's real and what's true. RJ and I actually share a hospital day, which means that RJ just does all the visits and won't let me have any. <laughs> just so you know. <laughs> like, it's rare that he'll it's, be like, hey, can you go see I, this person? He's like, I oh, know. I'm going to go see them all. I'm like, all right, man. I think they, I think 
people think it's it's a it's a time suck or something. It's something that I don't have time to do. And I'm like, dude, don't take this away from me. Like my ministry will just wither away and die if I'm not spending time with people that yeah. are are going through real things. You know, I don't want to spin in my own head all the time. You know, I wrote about it on the website this week, but my beloved therapist and mentor, Dorothy Martin, died this week. And it's, it had wow. me thinking about this on, on, a, on a deeper level. RJ, you probably remember when she spoke at Mockingbird all those years mm-hmm. ago. And she is just an incredible person. And I think she was ready. She'd lost her husband a few years ago, was sort of really missed him. But the way she even talks about how to deal with people, the way she dealt with me is something I just wanted to read a little passage from her book to close here is she's writing about sort of misbehaving children or troubled kids. And she says, understanding what it is like to be under siege, the good parent, as well as the good mentor intervenes powerfully and unconditionally on the side of what is good for the child, standing with the child instead of standing over against him in judgment. Such a stance is in fact derived from the way that God enters into human suffering with mercy, moving first with grace, not waiting for bad behavior to change, and with patience, that is to say, sustaining and accompanying the human being without coercion. That, my friends, is where I would end. I'm going to get a little teary here, but Sarah, did you want to say something to end? I don't know, man. I think that's good. Okay. Well, amen to that. Yeah. Um, We'll be back in a couple weeks, but before we do, just want to throw out an announcement about the New York City Mockingbird Conference. Well, actually, we've got Tyler coming up in just a few weeks in end of February. If you're anywhere near Texas, we would love to see you. It's always a blast. It's sort of the hidden gem of the Mockingbird time. But we also have April coming more quickly than we think. Postcards are going out this week. We've announced more and more speakers. It's April 26th to the 28th. Sarah is going to be the chaplain this year. I will be there. And we are praying not only that Tom Brady would be brought low, but that RJ <laughs> Heyman would be brought to New York City, yeah. uh, given all of the, the vigil many starts demands now. on his time. <laughs> the vigil starts now. So write in your your uh, your fan mail, your hate mail to him, but your fan to mail to there. I would love to be there, Dave. We're, we're going to pressure him every single time until we get there. Sounds amazing. So uh, check that out. That's at ember.com slash events or conference.ember.com. And um, yeah, that's it. Talk to you in a couple weeks. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.embird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at embird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time.